So we'll continue looking at the nature of man by looking at the garden that God put man into. This has to do with his realm. And so we'll look at verses 8 through 14. Whoever would like to read those for us. 8 through 14 of Genesis 2. Thank you, Trump. Then the Lord, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four riverheads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hittichel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Thank you very much. So God has taken care of the issue that was there of making the, the plants be able to sprout. He made uh, this mist come up from the ground. He's made man now in this perfect, beautiful picture of uh, this man with whom he'll be able to have fellowship, and this man who has a, a part of even God himself, as the, the spirit was breathed into him. The spirit is the word for breath there. This is not talking about the soul necessarily in that point. That is an issue that will come much more clearly in the New Testament when God brings life and immortality to light. But God has now planted a place. He's made a special place to put the man. And I want you to kind of consider with me this aspect of this garden. God has made the whole creation, and out of that creation, he has separated a planet. This is the planet that we're on, the planet Earth. And on that planet Earth, he's made all this abundance, but he's separated now a special garden for this man. What I want us to see, and I want to start to have a picture of this, is that we have on this holy separated Earth a holy of holies in this garden. And this is the place where God will come and have fellowship with the man he has made. I mention that now because I want to bring you back to it in a moment. I want you to think about it just for a moment while we have that in the back of your head. So he's made this special holy garden, this separated garden, and he's put the man there. So this is another aspect of this separation we saw all through chapter 1 as God is making these divisions or separations of waters from waters and land from waters and animals separated into their kinds and species. All of these separations, the word was holy as he sanctified. We saw that in the last time as he separated that one day. So God has now separated this garden. And so out in this garden, he's made all of these trees to grow. This is amazing to think about. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Now think about that for a moment. What purpose does a tree serve that is pleasant to the sight? Yes? Uh, wind or you know, breezes. You can see breezes and the, and the trees will channel those down. So there may be something pleasant about that, but... A tree that's pleasant to the sight, in the end, is there a purpose to it? The flowering, what yeah. it bears. It would have flowers on them. Yeah, that would be something pleasant to see. My mother loves Christmas trees, and she used to joke that she was going to leave hers up until her birthday, which is in June. 
Uh, I, she's made it to March or April, and the thing was so brown and crispy that it was a fire hazard to take it down. But she loves them. And so she'll even just hang Christmas lights around her house because she loves the beauty of that. Well, you know, a Christmas tree is kind of man-made beauty of a tree, but there are some trees that are just gorgeous to look at. Uh, and so what is the purpose, though, of a, a pleasant-to-look-at tree? We, we think about the tree for food. That, that's got an obvious purpose. They didn't eat it. Implies somebody looking at it, which I, I think is, is us. Yes. As the stars were there as signs of a, of a creator, so we look at those, and we see those from the beginning. We saw in, verse, in, in chapter 1, verses 14 through 19, that they were there for signs, and one of the biggest signs is, somebody made me. Psalm 19 saying that over and over as the heavens declare the handiwork of God. But a beautiful tree implies someone's going to look at it. Is all beauty in the eye of the beholder? That's a famous saying we have. Or is there some beauty that supersedes beholders? <laughs> Has anybody ever looked at a sunset and gone, oh, oh, that's horrible. I can't believe I actually looked at that thing. Well, sunsets are not in the eye of the beholder. Their sunsets are all beautiful. And sunrises, people pay good money to take cruises. They can watch the sunset in the ocean or go up in the mountains and watch the sunrise or sunset from there. Everybody in any place in the world, in any culture, will agree that a sunset is beautiful. And there are trees that were made in this garden here to be pleasant to the eyes. But why? What is the, what is the reason for something that's just pleasant to look at? Does it serve a purpose? It's a gift from God. Amen. It's a gift from God. What do atheists do with beauty? I want you to think about that for a minute. Atheists, as I was one, as I've talked to some of you about, when you look at beauty, you have a problem. Because beauty in some way implies something good, some standard we can all look at and agree, that's good. That's, there's something beautiful about that. It's interesting how David will talk about approaching God in the beauty of holiness. <laughs> Beauty is something that reminds us that the Creator was good. An atheist who expects this world to be just random chance would expect hard and crisp angles on everything and sharp edges. And the world has so much that is soft and supple and beautiful. And these trees that were just made to be pleasant to look at, does beauty affect our personality? You bet it does. <laughs> beauty affects our mood. And there are things that uh, you know the best artists will paint in a way that that attain to the sublime. We talked about that aspect yesterday. You look up at the stars and you feel so small. When you look at a really beautiful piece of artwork that you can't reproduce, but somebody had the talent to do, you begin to feel really small. Not in a negative way. Not in, oh, I'm so terrible, I can't do that. But look how beautiful and perfect that is. Somebody had the talent to do that, and you admire that. The beauty of creation is something that should make us admire the goodness of God. And I believe that beauty answers goodness. I think and that, that's something that, that atheists struggle with. How, is, how does beauty exist in a world that is random chance? Well, they want to argue it's in the eye of the beholder, but there are some things they have to agree is universally beautiful, and that, that presents a problem. How is that possible if there's no universal good? So I struggled with that, and the Bible has an answer for it. <laughs> uh, so there's pleasant trees to look at. There's trees that are good for food. There's this tree of life. We'll find out a little bit more about that later, but I mean, it is what it, what it says it is. It produces this life that is not ending. There's a way for this physical man to have a continuous life if he's in this garden. We're going to see that's going to be a major point in a moment. And there's also this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that's the one I mostly get asked about. And that's the one that's the least spoken about, to tell you the truth. The only thing I know for sure is that this tree provides an opportunity for a man to prove whether he loves God or not. And that's really the end, the purpose of this tree. 
Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And so he gives the commandment. And you can prove whether you love him or not by following his commandments or not following his commandments. Tied to this tree, God's going to give them command for their good, to keep them from dying. And it's going to be a test of whether or not they're going to love him and obey him. Sometimes I try to use uh, some examples to explain this concept of free will. But imagine if you force, you have three children, you force two of them every day to come in and give you a rose and give you a kiss and tell you that they love you. You force two of them to do that. The third one, you let do what he wants. But one day he comes in and gives you a rose and kisses you and tells you that he loves you. Which of those three do you believe really loves you? Well, the one who did had a choice not to, but chose to. The other two didn't have a choice, they're forced to do it. And the idea of free will is, is that we're not robots, we're not automatons, we're not forced into doing what God wants. We have to choose. And when we choose to do what he wants, we prove our love to him. When we reject doing what he wants, we prove that we love ourselves. And so God has given them an opportunity to prove their love in this tree. We'll see that as we go through, it'll become more clear. But these things he all he put into the, the garden that he's made. Now I want you to think about the description of this garden. It's interesting that he says he planted this garden eastward. In Eden, and he gives the place a name. That word Eden, if we were reading this in Hebrew, we would just read, he planted a garden in paradise. <laughs> That's what that word means. This is a garden of paradise. And so even the word itself has this aspect of beauty. We've come to give it that aspect because we know what that word really means. But he begins to describe this garden in the terms of, of water, in terms of rivers that go around it. Again, he's taking care of watering this garden with no rain. I believe there's all kinds of indications that rain only comes later. He's made these rivers, though. And so there's this one river that goes out of Eden and waters it by parting and becoming four river heads. So it completely surrounds this beautiful, lush, and perfect garden. And he doesn't say something like, once upon a time in the land of Pishon. <laughs> he says, there is a garden, and it was in this place, and this is the name of the river. And he names off four rivers. Two of those we can't find anymore. But two of those we know. The Hiddekel, it says in my version, but a lot of yours will have the word Tigris instead of Hiddekel. And the other is the Euphrates. And at the time when Moses was writing this, the other two were probably known. The point is, Moses is registering here an historical register. This is not myth. This is not some epic poem. We see this in a lot of other religions, this kind of mythological epic poetry. The Bible treats itself as historical fact <laughs> and says, here's the place. Here's the name of it. You don't believe me? Go look. And often the Bible will do that. In fact, several times in the Old Testament we'll see, and it has this name to this day. This field has been called so-and-so to this day. The idea is you can go check. Paul does that, an interesting thing, similar to that in 1 Corinthians 15. He says there were over 500 brethren that saw Jesus at one time after his death. And the idea is, go ask them if you don't believe me. There's 500 eyewitnesses just at one time. And so the Bible never presents itself as just kind of this mythical, fictional story. It's just once upon a time there was a man in the land of Ur. No, it's not like that. It's giving us historical, uh, factual data that we, can, that we can fix on. And so the names of these rivers do that. So that's, that's one important point that we need to understand. But there's something else going on here. He tells us about these rivers as the description of, the, uh, of Eden and the, and the water of life. And we'll see those images of water going all through the Bible. But then he begins to describe this first river, Pishon, or Pishon, that goes around the land of Havilah, where there is gold. If you think about the Garden of Eden, I don't typically first think of gold and precious stones, but that's what God focused on here. 
I tend to think of the man and the woman and some beautiful fruit tree. But God didn't picture that really. He pictured gold in the land of Havilah. And what about this gold, verse 12? What does it say about it? That's good gold. Anybody got a different word there besides good? Yeah. Pure. It's pure gold. That's the word. Yeah, the pure gold's good gold, but pure is the better translation. I don't know why almost all of our translations don't use that. Maybe remember was a better translation on the other one. But yeah. So this is a different word that God seeing that it was good in the previous chapter? I'm not sure about that, but I know that this word deals with purity, and that's the aspect of this gold, is it's pure. I'll have to look that up. You, you can look that up if you want to. But I appreciate that that point. The idea, though, is that this, this gold is pure. And that'll be important in a moment. What else is in this verse, in verse 12? What else is there in the garden besides gold, uh, this pure gold? Bedelium and onyx. Bedelium and onyx. We talk about bedelium probably every day, so all of us know what that is. What about onyx? I'll come back to the bedelium. What about onyx? <laughs> it's a black stone. It's a precious stone. Anybody have an idea what bedelium is? you have a different translation for bedelium? Did somebody translate what that is? No. It took me years. Yeah. A yellow transparent, uh, I'm sorry, I just put it in. Um, gum resin. A yellow transparent gum resin. Like Anybody water. know what they use gum resin for? Amber. Tree sap. Yeah, Not just tree sap, but this is a specific kind of a resin that is used for incense. <coughs> this is incense. Yeah, frankincense comes from this kind of gum. It's not frankincense specifically here, but it's incense. Now, I want you to think with me for a second. The three things that God specifically mentions being in the garden are pure gold, incense, and the black onyx stone. It's on the slide. We don't have time to go look at all the verses. But where do you think we see those three things together for the first time again in the Bible? you have any idea? Tabernacle. In the tabernacle. Where in the tabernacle? In the Holy of Holies. The priest will be told to put these onyx stones specifically on his shoulders with the names of six tribes on one and six on the other. He has pure gold woven into his clothing on his breastplate and it's on the ark. And he can't go into the presence of the ark with these stones on unless he's lit the incense on the altar and then he goes in before God. What? <laughs> What God chose to reveal about Eden is this is the Holy of Holies. In fact, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle is a reflection of Eden, which, you remember these, these same elements anywhere else? You ever think about these three things anywhere else, same combination? Angels think it. Revelation! What are the streets paved with? Because it's just everywhere. <laughs> with gold. Is the incense there? We just read in Revelation 4, it's the prayers of the saints. What about those onyx and precious stones? Aren't those on the, 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 the walls of the city? You've got all of these things together again because, in, in effect, God has made a miniature heavenly realm in paradise. And these are just kind of a physical representation of the true heavens. But they were in the Holy of Holies as they're in this separated garden on this separated planet in the separated creation. It is a holy, the holiest place. That's why God is going to come there and have fellowship with them. I brought that up earlier so we could think about it again here. The, verse, the verses that support all of that are on the slides, and it's something that I didn't come to from Genesis. I came to it after studying Exodus and watching the construction of the tabernacle, and I started thinking, all oh, these things are back in the garden. And you make the connection. And I want you to understand that once again, this is the thumbprint of God in Scripture. There's no way that men who didn't know each other, didn't speak the same language, didn't live in the same town, didn't live in the same place, 
would have written these details in such a way that they weave this thread that comes together perfectly and creates this perfect uh, closed story here. This is God writing the Bible through men. Men were agents, but the word was God's. And so we see this detail, and I think it just brings out really clearly what Eden is really all about here. Man and woman in fellowship with God. And that's why it's so striking when they are cast out, when sin comes in. In just a moment, we're going to see that. But before that, we get another bittersweet moment. We see the creation of, of woman and the institution of marriage. And it's such an important thing for us to look at. God put this at the very beginning of the Bible, and he will refer to this passage over and over throughout the Bible as his plan for marriage. And we need to understand this. When Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, what about divorce? He said, let's go look at Genesis chapter 2. And he talked about marriage. If we know what marriage is, divorce won't be an issue. <laughs> but most of us don't know what marriage is. And so we get into finding out what marriage is after we've already messed up and have divorced, and now we're trying to figure out what we're going to do. Let's look at what marriage is and this creation of woman here. So who will read with me or for me verses 15 through 25 to finish out chapter 2? Thank you, John. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Why don't we stop there? I'm sorry, I'm going to skip the most important key moment here between the creation of man and woman. Let's look at the, at the moment of the commandment first, then we'll come back to the rest there. I'll let you finish reading in a moment. So God took the man, he's, he prepared the man, he prepared the garden, then he brought them together. So he's put the man in the garden that he's made, and what is the instruction he gave him at first in verse 15? What's the reason for him being there? To cultivate is not the best translation. you say cultivate? That's not really the best translation because it involves an awful lot of work. Work it, and watch over it. work it is a legitimate translation. Watch over it is really good at the end. The idea of maintaining it. But the word for work here is a lesser word than we're going to see after sin. To tend it. It's much easier to tend to something that's already been made than it is to make it yourself and then try to keep it up. So God has made this beautiful garden, perfectly made, and then the man is put there just to, just to maintain it, just to make sure it stays like it, like it is, and, and continues. Not that it just stays in stasis, but continues to grow. Uh, and that concept we'll see, both in the Old and the New Testament. Remember when they go into the promised land, what Moses tells them about this land before they go in? How does he describe the promised land? Land flowing with milk and honey. Who put that milk and honey there? Did the Jews? What they didn't plant. Yeah, you'll reap vineyards you didn't plant. You'll live in houses you did not build. You'll have cisterns you didn't hew out. You didn't do any of the work. It's just there. You're going to go in and God's just giving it to you. That's a reflection of Eden. They're going into their promised land, their new Eden, if you will, as God is bringing them into his presence as his people. That's the idea. So what did Jesus say in John 14 when he's about to go? I'm going to prepare a place for you. What do we do? We go and we receive this place, this mansion is the word he uses. It is this, this perfect house that we just have to tend and keep. So this idea of Eden is perpetuated through the, through the scriptures as well. So God has prepared this place and he prepared a man for this place. But in this garden that he's going to be tending and keeping, he then gives them some instructions. And I want you to notice that verse 16 is generic instruction, or generic commandment, and verse 17 is specific. And we'll get into that a little bit more as we go through uh, Bible history. But God's commands usually take these two forms. Either something that's very general, do this and be, be blessed, or very specific, 
don't do this thing or you won't be blessed. And so we'll talk about the difference in those. But what's the generic command in verse 16? Eat any tree you want. Yes, and he even uses an interesting word here. How, in what way should they eat? Freely. The truth will set you free. Now God, God's laws are meant to govern freedoms. Now, government means there will be some restrictions. Freedom that is at the cost of somebody else is not really a freedom. But, but God wants them freely to eat of every tree of the garden. God made this all for them and has given them the freedom to do with it what they will. However, the specific command in verse 17 is what? Don't eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And some versions say, which is in the middle of the garden. It's like this thing is just right there as the major temptation. Because with a specific command, almost always, there's a consequence for violating it. A generic command is so open that it's almost impossible to violate it. God's just giving you the freedom to do it. Now, there is some violation of generic command. But it's, it's open. But a specific command, usually when that's given, there is a, a, a penalty for violation. So don't eat from that tree because you'll die. In the day you eat of it, you'll die. That is pretty stern words. And people have argued, well, they don't know what death is. They haven't seen that before. It's right, but God knows. <laughs> and they're going to figure it out once things begin to happen. And he wants them to remember those words he used. And so uh, there's this, this command. Of every tree you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Is that hard to understand? No. Pretty easy. Is God testing Adam's intelligence? Obedience. He's testing his obedience. That's the way the whole Bible is. I love when people tell me, you can't understand the Bible. When we're, I'll ask them if they want to say, you can't understand the Bible. I'll go to a, a text like this. You know, the commands are not hard to understand. The question is not that you can't understand it. It's that you don't want to do it. And I'll just tell them straight up, you don't want to do it. I started studying the Bible with my mother after I was converted. And she told me the same thing. No, nobody can understand the Bible. All these people think they've got it right. These people think they've got it right. Everybody's got their own opinion. Nobody can understand it. So why even bother? I said, fine, you can think that if you want. I don't believe that's true. God wants us to understand his Bible, so let's just read it with me a little bit. So we read through the first four chapters of Mark. When we got to Mark 4 and started looking at the parables, and the parable of the sower specifically, we read the text together. This is four weeks into studying the Bible that she can't understand. We read the text together, and she said, I'm the third soil. <laughs> I said, what'd you just do? <laughs> I thought you couldn't understand. She said, that's easy. I said, yeah, most of it is. And she was saying, I'm the third soil, and I don't want to change. So don't study with me anymore. But she understood that there was a consequence to her action, and she understood that from reading the text. And she said, I'd rather just keep the consequence. So you can't understand the Bible. And the question is, we don't want to do it. So then we say, well, nobody can understand that. God's Bible is not made to be difficult to understand, but it is made to test whether we're willing to do his will or not. And that's what's being tested here. And that's what the rest of the Bible will test. It gives us an opportunity to prove, do we love God or do we love ourselves or what this world has to offer? And we've got to make that choice. So God has given him this simple command, testing his obedience. Now, Jonathan, if you will continue, we'll see when he brings the woman into the equation. So the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground, the the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. 
The man gave names to all livestock, and to the birds of the heavens, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was no found, there was, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and when he slept, took one of his ribs and closed it up, and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and brought her to the man. And man said, <coughs> This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay. So, something striking happens in verse 18. The Lord speaks and says, It is not good that man should be alone. After seven times saying, It is good, it is good, it is good, it is very good, he now says, It is not good that man should be alone. And we need to remember, he's saying this before verse 31 of chapter 1. We've gone back into day 6, into the creation of man and woman. We were told back in Genesis 1, he made them both on the same day on the sixth day. So this is not some chronology now. We've kind of gone back in to the week of creation. We're looking at that sixth day. But before he finishes and makes the announcement, all is very good, there's something that's not good. This is God in his eternal wisdom saying, this is not some observation, oh, I messed up and forgot to make a woman. That's not the point. We are now looking into God's thinking process in the creation, and he says, I need to make a woman for the man because it's not good for the man to be alone. Think about that for a second. Is God alone? Even God is not alone. Let us make man in our image. God understands that aloneness is not a good thing, and so he makes the woman for the man. And all through Bible history, he made the family of Abraham and blessed his family. He made this nation of Israel and blessed that nation. And he's made a church of his people, which he calls the family or the kingdom or whatever it is. He expects us to be together. and He wants us to be together, and he made us for that purpose, just as he is together. John 17, Jesus prayed that they would all be one just as you and I, Father, are one. We're together, we're united, and we're working for a common purpose. That's why God made us. We're working together. So it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Notice also that it's not Adam who says that. It's not good for a man to be lonely. He's not calling out to God. If you watch some of the, the cartoons, the, the, the uh, Christian, uh, in quotes, cartoons, you may see Adam's out walking through the garden and there's two elephants going by and he sees the two little bunny rabbits and a tiger and a tigress and he begins to be lonely. Well, God didn't make anything for me. That's not what's going on here. We will see there is a, an aspect of delay. God wants Adam to understand what the purpose of woman is and so he's going to reveal this to us and I believe to Adam in this sort of delayed sense but it's still within the first day. It's not like he waited a hundred years and saw Adam just dejected because he had nobody. This is in the first day. And so, what does God do? His response to aloneness, and I want you to understand this is not loneliness. Loneliness is a feeling. Aloneness is a state. And sometimes loneliness is actually a good thing. Jesus was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be alone. And there, he had to wrestle with some things as he came out to serve God and begin his preaching. But so loneliness sometimes is a good thing if it drives us to seek God, the one who will never leave us alone. But aloneness, God said, is not good. 
We don't need to be serving alone. We need to be serving together. And so his response to man's aloneness was to make a helper that was fit or comparable, that exactly matched this need of his aloneness. And this helper, he's going to make a woman. Sometimes when I'm doing this study, I'll I'll ask, usually if it's it's with a man especially, I'll say, what would you have done? You're in the garden, you're supposed to tend and keep this thing, a lot of work. What would you do if you needed someone to help? And usually, maybe it's like, make a buddy. (laughs) I'd like another guy to come. I might need to push a tree over. Someone, somebody's going to be able to help me do this kind of this kind of work. Uh, you know, men think differently than God does. God's response to man's aloneness was woman. This is is a foundational truth in the Bible, and it's one that our modern society is really trying to get away from. And it's not a problem with God's revelation. It's that cracked lens view. It's that 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 lens is broken. So we're seeing things through that crack and thinking that doesn't look right. Let's try to fix it. But we're fixing it on the crack, and it's not going to fix it. This will fix it. This will restore our vision where it needs to be. And so, God made woman as the response to man's aloneness. But before that, he did something interesting in verse 19 and 20. And I like the way Jonathan's reading was. Mine says, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air. So it sounds like he sees man's alone and starts making these little animals and bringing them to to man to see if that'll help. Not what the text actually said. My translators left out a word. <laughs> it, it's inherent in the Hebrew, so they didn't put it in here in the English. But his version said, did you notice, the Lord God had formed. This was all done up until the moment he made man and woman. When you go back to chapter 1, it's more clear. He's already made all the birds and all the fish and all the animals. So now he just starts bringing them before Adam. He wants to impress upon Adam that these animals aren't going to take care of his aloneness, that they're not equal to him, they're not comparable to him in what he really needs. And so he brings to them to Adam all of these animals. And what does Adam do with the animals? Did you recognize that from somewhere else? Who's been naming up to this point? This is another aspect of the image of God. Man has the authority to determine purposes for the animals, at least. I'm not sure what the names he gave them were in the Hebrew or what they would translate to to English. But we do that with things. We give them names that represent what they do or what they are. And that's another aspect of our godness. We name our children. Uh, There's some aspect inherent in us with our rule and dominion that that we name and purpose things. That's what God has been doing. It's what Adam does here. And so all the creatures are given these names. But what's the end result? Verse 20, there is not found a helper comparable to him. So Adam's sitting in the garden and the... Panda bear sitting there eating some bamboo next to him, and he says, oh, "Hand me that hammer so I can hang." <laughs> well, I don't have opposable thumbs. I'm going to hand you a hammer. I don't know what the situation was, but he begins to realize this animal can't help me like the help I need. You can't reason with an animal. Animals can be trained to do a lot of things. Dogs and, and dolphins and a lot of intelligent, if you will, animals can be trained to do a lot of things, but they can't be trained to reason. They're trained by repetition. And they recognize situations that will do things. But you can't tell an animal, like your best dog, hey, I'm only going to be home this week on Tuesday, get my slippers and my newspaper ready, and if it's raining, put your raincoat on. It's not going to happen. But every day you come to the door, he might be there scratching the door because he knows what time you're going to be there. He's here's your car. There's just some instinctive things they do repetitively. But you can't get them to reason. But with a woman, some would say you can't get them to reason either. (laughs) Not my case. But uh, I'm not trying to cause anybody any problems, I promise. But with a woman... You can think together. You can put your heads together and determine how is the best way to do this. And when, in God's plan, that is done the way it should, there's a blessing in that. And I want to tell you, I stand for that blessing. Marriage is the greatest blessing besides our service to the Lord that there is. And we will see that in this text if we're careful. (laughs) 
So God has made this woman to be what he needs. So when he realizes the animals aren't going to do it, then God steps into action. Now Adam is aware. Now he's at a point where he can learn from this. So he puts Adam to sleep. God performs the first surgery here. Puts a man to sleep, takes something out, closes it back up. It's exactly a surgery. Done miraculously here, if you will. But he takes from the man a rib that he's going to make into a woman. And I want to think about that for just a moment. Why a rib? When I got married, we went to the Justice of the Peace the day before our actual wedding ceremony. And the person who was doing the, the, the signing of the official documents wanted to say some words. And so uh, she went to this text, and it was a female Justice of the Peace. This was in Brazil. She went to this text, and she said, Now, God, when he, when he took the rib out of man to make the woman, he didn't take a bone from the head so that she wouldn't think she was above him. But he didn't take a bone from the foot so he wouldn't think he was above her. Took a rib so they would know they belong walking side by side. You know, that's poignant. It's, it's interesting to think about. And it may have something to do with it. I think we can do better biblically. When you think about taking a rib, what is the function of a rib? Protect what? The vital, the vitality, yes. The lungs and heart specifically. The liver and some others may be couched up in there as well. But lungs and heart really is the idea of the ancients at least, that the ribs were covering those things. So man's life breath and his, his vitality, his heart. What is the purpose of a good woman? <laughs> I want you to think about that. A woman who fulfills her role properly protects man's vitality. Not just her husband's, by the way. <laughs> but specifically her husband's. Look at Proverb 31. The language here is, is beautiful to think about. And of course, we recognize this as the proverbial uh, woman. But I want you to look at what's said here. Let's see. Um, verse 10, obviously, who can find a virtuous wife? I'll let you get there. Proverb 31, verses 10 and 11. Who can find a virtuous wife? Her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trust her, so he will have no lack of gain. Can leave the house, knows his wife's going to be home taking care of the things that need to be taken care of there. He can go out and do his work because he safely trusts her. He's not concerned that the neighbor's coming to visit while he's away. And she, on the other hand, also is not concerned that he's visiting some other neighbor while he's away. In the relationship that God determined for us, the woman is able to make the man's vitality strong so that he can do what he needs to do and he's able to protect her so that she can do what she needs to do. And I said it's not just uh, his own wife but when you think about women's roles in society, when they perform their roles as they should, they protect men's vitality. You think about the unvirtuous woman in Proverbs how she weakens the man and calls him in and he comes into his own death. God made woman to be the helper of mankind. Now, for some people, that's an ignoble thing. That's it's below me. And certainly in our day and age, certainly much damage has been done by the equal rights uh, movement, if you will, or the feminist movement that has brought with it a wave of other things that were never initially intended. I want you to understand when equal rights are proclaimed, the idea is not equal. It always is specific and special. It's not that we just want an equality. We want to prove that we're better. And so, some people have rejected this concept of the woman who was made with a specific purpose, who was made to be a helper to the man, not to be the government over the man, but to be the helper for the man, to help him fulfill what God made him to be 
while she would fulfill then what God made her to be. And while we don't accept those roles, we're going against the order that God created. And disorder will be the, the, the reign of the day. And we can see that in our society really clearly. In other societies that, that, that embraced feminism before us have, have destroyed themselves, destroyed the family specifically, and then the society falls apart not long after that. But I want you to consider this idea that God made woman with a purpose as a helper, a separate role from the man's. I like to teach this lesson when my wife is with me. Because when I teach this lesson just as a man by myself, it looks like I'm just kind of chauvinistic. I think the man should be the ruler of the household and the woman should submit. And the idea here is not that man is forcing woman into subjection. Some people have abused the Bible text and have, have created a wave of rejection by feeding the wife into submission, into subjection. That's not the point at all. She is made for submission in, in her own role. She should subject herself to the rule of her husband. And not in dominance, but in reigning together with him. That's the idea. They're working together in a comparable way. So men have really ruined this by beating the woman into subjection. And others have ruined this idea of the woman's role by thinking that, that any kind of service, that's something that's not noble. If you say you're a servant of someone, you've come to serve and help someone, that that's not noble. <laughs> Jesus saw service as noble. He told the disciples among the Gentiles, the ones who want to lord it over them, they, they want to beat into submission those other ones, and they want to get their, their service. We think of public servants in our country, and certainly in Brazil, they're called ministers, and that word means a servant. They're the ones who are, who are getting rich and fat off the people. That's not what the word public servant means. It means they're the ones who are most serving the people. And that's what Jesus said we ought to be. The word servant's gotten a bad, a bad uh, reputation in our society. And we tend to think, I don't want to be in a part of that. But a woman who fulfills her role in service to her husband, that doesn't include the husband serving her, but when those roles are fulfilled as they should be, marriage will be what it ought to be and society will be what it ought to be. God created marriage and he brought man and woman together in a, this dichotomous relationship. They'd be working together. Have a comment, Greg? It, it always helps me uh, to see in First Corinthians 11, verse 3, where it talks about, uh, he says, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a, uh, of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Uh, and, and it uses the same type of relationship between Christ and God, or Christ and the Father, yes. that he does with man and woman. Uh, you know, it's, it's, Christ had a role of submission, but that did that make him not equal with the Father? Did that make him less valuable with the Father? The, the work that he had as that role of submission yeah. um, uh, redeemed us, bought our salvation. Uh, that is not a lowly work. Amen. That is a magnificent work. Because he fulfilled his role. He, he actually he humbled himself to fulfill that role, uh, Philippians would say in other texts. And you're absolutely right. On the slides, we, we'll talk about that a little bit more in detail. But even the Holy Spirit then, Jesus said, I will send him. I have to go and then I will send him. So the Holy Spirit in some way submitted himself to Jesus' role. And so the three of them working together, each fulfilling their specific role, brought about salvation. Uh, in 1 Timothy 2, one of the texts that's most maligned about uh, women's role, it says that the, the woman, uh, I'll read the, read the verse, 1 Timothy 2.15. Um, you get a little, little off task, but I think it's worth uh, getting into this. Uh, the woman will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. And that seems like such a strange thing for Paul to bring up to Timothy, and it sounds like he's saying that a woman who doesn't have children can't be saved. 
That's not the point at all. In the context, he's talking about women who are uh, learning in silence and who are being submissive in, in their role. And he brings out, tying back to Eden, that what brought about salvation was Eve submitting to her role as the one who would bring about a seed. And if she hadn't accepted her role, salvation wouldn't have come. And then in today's world, as women subject themselves to their role as mother and as guide of young men, they're presenting to the world preachers and elders and others who are going to take the word forward as they are adorning the word in their own lives. And so together, the continuance of salvation goes as we fulfill our roles that God gave us. And all that context is talking about that. So there's others, that, other things that will be on the slide that will help bring that idea a little more forward. For, for time's sake, we won't be able to, to belabor that too much more. But we need to understand that God gave us specific roles. One of the arguments that I will bring up sometimes is we understand that physically. Uh, of course, today, they're, they're trying to do some crazy things with, with medicine uh, where men can give birth. But we understand it's the woman who gives birth. She's got that role. And nobody complains that she's got to give birth and then uh, that men don't. We understand that physically. But when we start talking about other types of roles, we think that, well, women are better than men. Well, they may be. They may be more suited to some things that men are given the role to do. That should be a thing that humbles us and keeps us within the constraints of what God has given us. But we need to understand God has given us specific roles. Let's accept them and understand them for what they are. And we'll only know that if we look at the Bible. So God has made this woman. He's made her with a specific purpose. And he's brought her to the man. And what does Adam sue? What does he say in verse 23? This is really interesting. Mm -hmm. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He recognizes this is what was missing literally from him. <laughs> this bone that was taken out, I don't know how he knew that if he was sleeping, but he's, there's an empty space. She is that fulfillment of that. I don't believe the Bible is teaching that there's a lost soul or whatever, the soul mate for everybody out there, and you've got to look around until you find your rib and put it back in. That's not the point. The point is that what's missing, if we're looking for something to fulfill that, it's going to be found in woman, <laughs> not in a specific woman, but that's who we need to make the partnership work like it's supposed to. And there is no other option that God gives here. This is not man with man. Those are great relationships. David and Jonathan had a relationship that was stronger in some ways than the love of women. It's a great thing to have. Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Timothy, those are great relationships. They don't substitute the role of men and women. Women and women, there are great relationships uh, in the Bible among women, but they don't substitute for the, the relationship of a man with a woman. Now, certainly Jesus was alone and fulfilled God's role. It's not a sin if you choose to be celibate or, or, or continue on your own. But in God's plan, there is a need for a man and a woman working together and for all of us working together as God's people. But that's the only plan that works in God's plan is a man with a woman in a marital relationship at least. So here's the bone of bones and flesh of flesh. And then he does something interesting after that. It's in verse 23 still. What does he do? He what? Thank you. There was a woman that pointed out to me the first time. I'd read this text so many times. She said, did you see what he did? He named her. Just like he'd been doing with all the animals. Except this time it was different. What name did he give her? Where did he get that idea? From his own name. He gave her his name. You ever heard of that before? In the Hebrew, it's he's ish, and she becomes ish-ah. He puts the feminine ending. In the Portuguese, he's vado, and she's vadoa. In all the different languages I've read it in, it's just a feminized form of his work, of his name. You ever heard of that anywhere else before? We do something really similar in our society. My wife, who could barely say our last name when we got married, took my name. 
my name is Ballard. And she took that name when we got married. That's a hard word to say in Portuguese. But she took that name. Because that is me giving her my name, as Adam did. We're becoming then that one bounded relationship. And our children then carry on our name. That's become our name now. What a blessing that is. I'd be pretty upset if she'd taken the name of one of my best friends. <laughs> what was that all about? I have a friend in college who took his wife's name. Uh, because that's what you do when you're in a liberal society. But the Bible concept has been carried through mostly in our society by us giving our name to our to our wives. That's an interesting reflection of this here. But then something else strange happens in verse 24. What in the world is Adam talking about here? A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they'll become one flesh. How does Adam know about a father and mother? I was so perplexed by this text for a long time. Is Adam saying that? It almost looks like it. In my old King James translation that I used to have, they had this all offset as though it was all Adam saying this. And so I was confused in part by the translator's choice and in part by that it looks like Adam saying this. But it's not Adam saying this. Matthew chapter 19, when Jesus is responding to the Pharisees who ask him about divorce, and he teaches them about marriage, he says, Have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female and said... Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be. Who said this? God did. So Adam accepts the woman, accepts her in a big way, gives her his name, and then God responds with his commentary on marriage. This is God's commentary, this verse. It's God's commentary on marriage. This is what I said. This verse will be referred to all through the Bible when you want to talk about marriage. And there are some who violated this in a big way from here forward. It is sinful, but God will always refer back to this. A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Therefore, what man is joined together, what God has joined together, let that man separate. That's what Jesus said in the conclusion in Matthew 19. Their idea of divorce is not coherent with God's idea of marriage, so they ought to change their idea about divorce. But God is giving his sanctioning of this relationship because he's the one who created it. And so we see some basic elements to it here. There is a man and a woman. Man and his wife. That's the marital relationship. Anything else is not a marriage. That, our society may name it that, may pass laws that say you have to call it that, but it, that's not what it is. God says what a marriage is. He made marriage. It is a man with his wife. Not a man with his dog. Some society accept that. That's not a marriage. Not a man with another man. Not a woman with another woman. Not a man with four women. Some societies accept even that. There's a new thing out called a thruple or a triple or whatever you call that. It's a real thing, and people are trying to legislate to be able to get marriages, three people. That is not a marriage. Marriage is defined by God because he created it. It's a man and his wife. They will leave father and mother. The idea is that these children, when they grow up and become married, they're no longer part of this household anymore. They're still our children, but they are creating their own household now. And so they're going to go off and cleave to their husband and wife relationship. That'll become the primary relationship now, and no longer the father and mother relationship. Now, the, the command to honor father and mother hasn't stopped. We continue to do that, but we don't do that by living under their roof. In fact, that would dishonor them after a while. Uh, we need to go off and honor them by doing the things they raised us properly to do and taking care of them in their, in their old age. Those are ways that we can honor our father and mother. But we cleave with our husband and wife, and so many relationships are destroyed because one or the other will not cleave to the husband, still cleaves back to the house. And every time something goes wrong, they run back home to tell mom and dad, and then mom and dad get involved, and then the couple separates. The new couple. That's the primary relationship now, and that's where it needs to be. 
That also means that when children come, they're fruit of the primary relationship. They're not the new primary relationship. In our society especially, we all spend so much time focused on the kids, and they become the center of the household. We raise them up, and we get them through college, and then we look at each other and think, eh, where did you move in here? <laughs> well, we had a bunch of kids, but that was just me and you, and I don't know you. What are you doing in my house? Because for 18 to 20 years, we've been looking at the kids and not at each other. Yeah, the children are the fruit of the relationship, and we need to look at each other and grow our relationship and let that help nurture our children so that when they leave, they'll have that good model they can grow their relationship from. Our society is doomed if we don't do that, and unfortunately, we haven't done that for a while, and our society looks doomed in a lot of ways. There's still hope. We can still look at the clear view and not the cracked men's view and fix it, but we need to be looking right here. So they shall become one flesh. There's a unity in what they'll become. Just like God is united. We saw that in John 17 earlier. And that's what God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit working together as separate roles, separate persons, working together for a unified purpose. That's what a man and woman ideally should be doing. And there's also, that is brought out in verse 25, this union also talks about physical union, the sexual union. There is no shame. In their nakedness, they're absolutely together as an expression of their unity in a, in a physical way. All of this is so very important, this teaching about marriage, because it actually becomes the model for the unity that God wants with us. He has given us sort of a model of his desire to be with us. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says very clearly, this, all this I'm teaching you about marriage, that I've gone back to Genesis 2 to talk about, he's really talking about Jesus and the church. How the Lord gave himself for his bride, the church, just as men should be given themselves for their brides. This model really depicts the love of God. It's no wonder that in a society where we've rejected what marriage really is, people have no idea what the love of God really looks like or should be like. And so they have these distorted, very uh, selfish ideas of what, what love should be in their relationships and what they expect from God. And so they can't see what real love looks like. We've got a huge responsibility as Christians to know what marriage is, to model it for the world and for our children especially, and to draw near to one another so we can draw near to God. We pray about that, my wife and I, sometimes about as we're drawing near to each other, we're drawing near to God. That's the way it works. It's the way God intended it to work. So we'll, we'll finish there. Again, I've kind of run long. Are there comments or questions up through verse 25 before we take our break before the last lesson? Yes, sir. Just a quick question. Mm -hmm. Since verse... Uh, 15 through 23 are all on the sixth day. Do you ever get any pushback from the atheist saying, well, that's a lot to happen in one day? I do, and I understand that God's able to make a lot happen in one day. He's, he made an awful lot of stuff on the other days as well. We're not talking about necessarily some psychological growth and understanding of all this. These are just the events that took place. God's revealing them to us so we'll understand what happened. But I don't have a problem with all this happening in one day. Uh, again, we're not dealing with loneliness. That would take longer than a day, I would think. It's dealing with aloneness, which is a state and not the feeling. So, yeah, there is pushback. I don't think it's legitimate pushback. I, I pushed back myself and convinced myself it wasn't legitimate. So, uh, you know, with, with the text, you can really see what God's doing here. It's a great question. Any other comments or questions before we stop for the next uh, before the next? All right, we've got about five minutes here. We could probably start a little bit later if we need to, and then we'll get into the, the first look at when sin enters into the world.